time for us to go to Wellington uh, to talk to Colin Peacock for Midweek Media Watch. Hi, Colin. Kia ora, Karen. How's life? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Serious story to start, and this is about the New Zealand Defence Force. Yeah, this was um, Stuff Circuit, as Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham, uh, the two sort of front people of it, producer and presenter respectively, uh, and Toby Longbottom, videographer, um, I think works with them as well. They're a sort of four or five person team. Uh, they actually were pretty much a, a unit on TV3 and the old 60 Minutes and then um, a programme called Third Degree um, that followed on from that. And then they went to work for Stuff, the newspaper company, producing their um, multimedia visual content on specific investigations. And they've done a couple of um, stories about Afghanistan. And the latest one they launched on Sunday called Life and Limb. And what I thought was interesting about it, first of all, was um, <clears throat> just how... Uh, how hard they worked to make sure it got out. So the, the topic of it was, uh, as you probably people would have heard in the news, I think 17 people, including seven children, uh, injured or killed uh, with ordnance that was on a New Zealand uh, U, uh, a firing range that New Zealand used in Bamiyan, where their uh, provincial reconstruction team uh, was, was working until 2013. Um, and that this had never been... Um, exposed in New Zealand before that this had happened and stuff circuits say look not enough was done to protect uh, the people that got injured there and not enough has been done since then to clean up this base uh, and, the, and the military just simply hasn't engaged with their questions so quite a hard hitting doco that they put out and uh, you know in the old days it would have been you know, a half-hour documentary on TV3, but now it goes out online on Stuff as a documentary. Māori TV screened it the same night that Stuff put it up. Uh, there's even um, the Sunday Star Times had it as the um, the front-page story, and several of the other Stuff papers followed up with um, stories related to the investigation. And they even published a QR code in the paper, so you could just show show that to your phone, and then the phone would go online and start playing the documentary to you. So now that we're talking about how we're funding our media for the future, and that's very much a topic, really interesting to see quite how a piece of kind of digital content can be made like this. It would have been traditional TV, um, you know, just a few years ago, but now this is how our factual stuff's being made and distributed. And the the story that it involves is very distressing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it even brought back a couple of things for me because, I mean, I um, wouldn't want to overstate this, but in... 1996, I made a short trip to Afghanistan and spent one day in an area that they were demining and trying to make safe. And some of the stuff there was from the Soviet occupation, which would have ended about eight, nine years before. Um, but had, some of it had predated that. Some of it had come after and some of the sort of Civil War type fighting that was going on. And watching that work going on, kind of horrible um, The scenes in in the Life and Limb doco by Stuff Circuit where there's uh, Eugene Bingham producer and Paula Penfold's going, oh, look, it's six years since our soldiers left. And, and look, look at what you can see. This area is completely unsafe, unmarked, unfenced. Um, you know, it's kind of sad to think really that, you know, New Zealand soldiers have had a role in, in leaving behind um, some of this um, this legacy of these dangerous weapons which, um, which really plague that country. But the main gripe that, that they had was partly this, this disengagement. And actually, we'll hear a little bit of, this is Eugene Bingham, uh, the producer of Life and Limb from Stuff Circuit, uh, on the air with uh, Duncan Garner of the AM show on 3. Um, and Duncan's basically asking him about what sort of response they got from uh, the New Zealand Defence Force. 
you're lucky in this thing that your evidence in the story you've told is, is so powerful that there's no way for them to wriggle out of this because usually, in my experience, the defence forces, uh, you have to effectively have them over the coals and they have no other option and it takes years and years to get them to tell, tell the truth. So you've done well. But, well why, yeah, why, aren't, why aren't they sitting here today, not me? Why aren't they sitting here and saying, look, this has happened, we're going to deal with it? Uh, you know, they've never fronted they might for come under pressure. They might yeah. come under pressure. They might have to tell the truth. Have they proven it that it, that it was the New Zealand Defence Force and uh, not someone who came before? No, Russia, not, not conclusively. Very difficult to prove that. Um, but if you watch the the documentary, and there's links to it on um, the Media Watch uh, page of the RNZ website, Midweek Media Watch with today's date, have a look at that. It's got links to stories and also some of the responses to it and the Stuff Circuit documentary itself. Uh, but some of the people there say, uh, look, they have tried to engage with New Zealand. The Defence Force say they actually obliged by international standards that applied at the time they left and engaging contractors to clean up the area or make parts of it safe, but it doesn't seem to have been adequate in that regard. Um, but, you know, what uh, Eugene is saying there, that, that you know, d- defence won't answer their questions. And the, 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 this is a shame because this is the second Stuff Circuit programme uh, about Afghanistan or investigation. And indeed, the same team, when they were still at TV3, had uh, researched the Battle of Baghak and done a whole separate investigation on that too. And their relationship with defence completely broke down. So there's a statement from defence about what they believe, uh, how they believe they lived up to their obligations and uh, what we do and don't know. So that's right at the front of the Stuff Circuit uh, documentary. Click on this, see their response here. But this is a bit of a worry. And indeed, um, their previous project, The Valley, um, about the, the Battle of, of Bag Hack in 2012, um, that has, uh, after that, it was the same deal. The, the, the Defence Force wouldn't engage with them, partly because Stuff Circuit had um, disputed some of the information Defence had given them, then approached serving officers who'd been part of that Battle of Bag Hack. Uh, one was... Um, famously approached in a car park and interviewed, and they didn't like that. So uh, afterwards, um, after that Valley, uh, the Valley project was published in 2017, uh, NZDF published a statement in response where they said, look, we found ourselves in position of lacking trust uh, between the Stuff Circuit and NZDF, lacking trust in each other. Stuff Circuit made it abundantly clear they didn't and don't believe our version of events and answers provided by us. They don't trust us. Uh, The NZDF argues, consequently, that we don't feel we get a fair uh, shake from uh, this team's reporting. We didn't trust them. This is a bit of a predicament, they say. Um, And this is the the reason why they won't allow them to speak to current New Zealand Defence Force personnel. That's with reference to the Valley, their previous project, but clearly with this one too, uh, they didn't want to engage until um, the, the, uh, the, the, the programme had been published. And what Duncan Garner was saying there was, was kind of interesting. He said, look, I was there, I was, this was a Hearts and Minds project, this Bamiyan Province Provincial Reconstruction Team. Uh, they weren't there to fight, they were there to, uh, to restore that province. And He's saying we went on facilitated trips when he was a political reporter with TV3. We were shown around the base. We were uh, showing the people to take uh, to shake hands with. We weren't taken over the hill to the firing range. And I don't know if he meant that literally, but I guess what he meant was, you know, that the military was facilitating trips so we could see what was being done, the hearts and minds stuff, and New Zealand's contribution to reconstruction. But... Um, 
now the Defence Force has been confronted with journalists like the Stuff Circuit team, like John Stevenson, who was actually a, an, an assistant producer on this particular project, who went as far as suing uh, the Defence Force chief back in, uh, I think, 2012, uh, when... Uh, they claimed that he'd never made some of the trips he, he claimed to have done and, and reported uh, in some of his reporting from Afghanistan. And in the end, they had to settle and acknowledge that they hadn't um, they hadn't entirely told the truth uh, about that. So a real breakdown here between investigative journalists wanting to know what happened in Afghanistan and the Defence Force. And um, I can't really see a way that this can be can be made good for the future. And if we've got a couple of hours, I suppose we could discuss the future of public broadcasting in <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> I know. There's been so much said about it, and I, I get stopped and asked about this everywhere I go these times. But one interesting thing, though, uh, the response to it, that after we uh, went into this in our Media Watch program for the weekend, some people said, oh, will this actually be like the old BCNZ? You know, we had radio and television, commercial radio, non-commercial radio, and, and commercial TV all under one umbrella, uh, which was broken up in 1975. Wasn't that the NZBC? There was the, uh, what did I say, the BCNZ? <laughs> yes. NZBC, you're quite right. Um, Broadcasting Corporation, the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. But uh, that was broken up in 1975. And um, the press in an editorial this week said, look, beware of people uh, saying uh, that this would be a return to sort of nostalgic times. There were much slower times. This isn't the model we want to follow. And some people asked, well, why was it broken up in the first place? And um, turned out the Kirk government in 1972 formed a committee to look into this because broadcasting had a lot of problems at the time. Radio was, was losing money and they were thinking about what do we do with a second TV channel. There was the challenge of colour television coming in. So there was deemed to be a need for a shake-up and the Kirk government was minded to innovate. And I think uh, in one um, account, which uh, has the spectacular title uh, Communication Policy in New Zealand Overseas Influence and Local Neglect, published in 1983, they noted that as was typical of the times, uh, a foreign expert was kind of put in charge of researching all this and making recommendations. And this was a former BBC controller called Kenneth Adam who uh, conducted a three-month investigation and research before writing a big report called The Future of Broadcasting in New Zealand. Um, Now, Tim Watkin from RNZ actually unearthed a chapter in a book which Mr Adam had written himself where he reflects on this whole experience, and it's it's actually pretty odd. Um, There's one extract here from which I'll read. He says, The challenge to public radio is increasing, not diminishing. It can be a prime agent of considered change towards a more widely informed, various interesting and entertaining community. The face and tempo of New Zealand life are placid. There is a great emphasis on every kind of open-air pursuit in the loveliest of surroundings for nine months of the year. But the beer-swilling heartiness of the Kiwi Saturday nights can be misleading. Man for man, woman for woman, the New Zealanders are among the most highly educated people in the world and they have a keen interest in the arts. And then he concludes by saying, um, if people are allowed to get on with their jobs in broadcasting, uninterrupted and unfettered, broadcasting could play a sustaining and stimulating part in extending those two virtues which are already characteristic of New Zealand, tolerance and understanding. Well, that's just plain weird. It's all just its very weird and sort of oddly condescending and extremely strange. And there's there's another book, um, in fact, it's that one I mentioned earlier, that Overseas Influence no, Local Neglect. They noted that um, Adam's committee spent three months preparing the report, 1,500 submissions and travelled up and down the country. And it quotes Kenneth Adam himself saying, the committee took every opportunity to talk to drivers, chambermaids, sportsmen, receptionists and people in bars. 
<laughs> Sounds like it was written in 1889 as opposed to 19, what was it, 1973, did you say? Uh, yeah, 73. Um, so this is, I mean, chambermaids? Uh, yeah, Were there chambermaids in 1973? There must have been. What it sounds like is they spent three months travelling around the country and he talked to the people who drove him to the hotels, the chambermaids <laughs> and receptionists in the hotels, and the sportsmen and other people in bars. So um, what a job, eh? For three months wandering around talking to people and, and then um, trying to work out what you should do with another, um, you know, the former colonies broadcasting. Extraordinary so, stuff. And was Kenneth Adams' recommendation that it be split at that time? It, it, eventually it was, um, although the report was, was kind of woolly and people accused them of actually commissioning uh, the report that they wanted uh, because they knew they had to do something, create another television channel. The big question really was... Um, the public wanted more choice in programming because they still had just the one channel and the system of governance was not really suited to that. So the, the thing really was, should they um, introduce commercialism at that point, you know, private operator, something like that, um, which of course didn't happen until 1989 in TV3 with a completely different um Government coming into play with a different notion of um, you know what's good and how economics could be applied to it all. Uh, but interesting that uh, in the run-up to that uh, government intervention, um, there had been a whole lot of people uh, proposing a warrant for a second channel. There was even a thing called the Associated Network Group, which had been formed by uh, a bunch of industries, including um, Watties Canneries and Kerajodian, um, you know, the cinema chain, all pressing for a private channel. So there was there was quite a, a big impetus behind that at the time. Well, so what is the future of public broadcasting, Colin? Oh, don't ask me, but that's going to be revealed in December. We'll see what what the government really wants to do. But, um, I mean, whatever they decide, and whether it is this leaked proposal uh, that Jane Patterson exposed last week on RNZ, that uh, this, this new body to replace TVNZ and RNZ, I mean, it's still many years away of talking to people they think look it could be you know three years before anything could could be done because this would involve premises studios technical stuff uh, so even if they decide to make a change like that uh, we probably still still uh, have the services we currently have for quite a time yet Right, let's go to the House and to Gareth Hughes, Green MP. Yeah so a bit of a story in the weekend when he decided to call it quits but the thing that made me sit up and take notice at first was when they said he was the Greens' longest-serving MP. And that suddenly made me feel uh, extremely old because um, yeah, he, he, uh, he came to Parliament only in 2010, February, but of course that's almost um, uh, getting on for a, a full decade now. Um, and he was the youngest MP in the House at that time. So to hear him sort of slightly wearily saying, look, I've done a long stint and I want to see my kids grow up and do something different was, was kind of sad. But... Um, when he made his maiden speech in Parliament, he put his own um, sort of usefulness into context, and I think we've got a bit of his maiden speech here. Politicians like the newest member of the House, the Greens' Gareth Hughes, who had this to say in his maiden speech last week. I was born in 1981 in a very different New Zealand. 28 years ago, we had 3 million people and 7 million sheep. You needed to get a doctor's prescription to buy margarine, and we had a very different National Party Prime Minister. Now, as Gareth Hughes also pointed out in that maiden speech, the 1980s are ancient history to his generation, but that should have been 70 million sheep, and no one's needed a prescription for margarine since the third Labour government scrapped that requirement back in 1974, and not under National in 1981. <laughs> 
So that was a ruthless bit of fact-checking by Jeremy Rose on, on Media Watch. Um, so we had a laugh about that because yeah, the, the poor guy, he, he made his first speech and the, you know, there he was. And he actually got in touch with us after that, I recall it. He rang up to say, oh yeah, fair cop. Because that, that thing about the margarine has become a bit of a... Um, what would you call it, a kind of trope of, uh, you know, those people who believe we had a kind of polar shipyard economy or whatever, that there were too many um, interventions and rules um, for political purposes. And that one actually wasn't true, that you needed a a prescription uh, to buy margarine at at that point. So, yeah, Gareth got in touch and said, oh, fair play, thanks for for correcting it, which was um, quite nice. But um, I guess thinking back to it, it made us feel a bit mean that we gave him such a hard time for such a new and very young MP um, who was trying to point out that um, that this was new stuff for him. Mm. We've got a couple of minutes left. What would you like to end with? Oh, just um, a tiny thing that I, I noticed um, in uh, the Los Angeles Times just came across our, our Twitter feed. Uh, they've started tweeting out um, photographs from their own archive and they've been real smash hits and some of them are really amazing. So uh, the 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 way that Los Angeles, the city, has grown and the archive, I think, going way back to about 1910 and they might even have some earlier stuff beyond that. And it made me think that it's a shame that more newspapers don't do this because they probably have the best collections of photographs um, anywhere in the world uh, of, of, of how cities have developed. Um, but then I began thinking, well, maybe it's not as simple as that. And it kind of took me back. We did an item on Ian Cross, the former... Um, the former broadcasting boss uh, and listener editor who died earlier this month, age 93, us trying to get audio of TV broadcasts that he'd made was a real nightmare because TVNZ's archive is now held by uh, or run by Getty Images um, so they can monetize it a bit better and you have to issue licenses to get the stuff and it's a real headache and... uh, we heard earlier that the Fairfax company, now Stuff, did a deal to send uh, controversially its photo archives to another American outfit to be archived and licensed out from there. So maybe it's the sort of thing that um, <laughs> that they, they can't now do. But there are the odd feeds. Like there's one called Old Wellington, which randomly tweets out publicly available non-copyright pictures of uh, old historic Wellington. People absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, if you, have, if you have a chance, go to the Media Watch page on the RNZ website and um, click on the link for, um, for uh, the, um, the LA Times archive and you'll see just how this can be done if you have the right to uh, put those pictures online. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Colin. Very interesting. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sure. Look forward to it. That's Midweek Media Watch with Colin Peacock.